out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of a photographer, Michael Greco, who I spoke to very recently to talk about life, love, poetry, and obviously photography. Has a new book out, which is titled Punk, Post-Punk and New Wave. Uh, this has just come out. Um, it's available on hardback from the publisher A. Abrams. Indeed. Do check it out. It is absolutely stunning. Mostly the work is from the late 70s and 80s. Um, Phenomenal. Phenomenal photography from the world that was the Boston music scene that features a huge amount of artists that we'll love to look at in their early days, which um, obviously, it's Christmas coming. Buy it. It might just change your life. Anyway, um, this is the interview. And after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the very interesting subject that was putting this book together. Obviously, the photographs coming back, to, uh, going back to uh, sort of 40 years and a little bit about why that's happened. And uh, yes the moment that it all came together. Anyway, this is Michael in conversation. Enjoy. He's an amazing character. Uh, yeah, I was uh, I was told by a gallerist friend, uh, David Fahey here, that, you know, a lot of this work um, uh, just gets better like wine over time. So. Yes. Well, this is quite interesting because cause I have a vague theory, which is quite a good one, I think, is that there seems to be a passing of time of between 25 to 30 years where things that we were probably very keen on, which we just looked at as kind of that was it, and then we move on. You look back and suddenly it has quite a different significance and it has a bit of a different quality. I just wondered if you've experienced that at all in, in sort of your work and obviously with this book as well. Yeah, obviously. I mean, I think just culturally, there's a there's a, more of an interest um, in general in the music. Uh, you know, as things go around, this is one of those things that's gone around and come back again. Yeah. But, uh, um, so culturally, yes, and and yeah, absolutely. I mean, to to for me personally, to look at what I was a part of and realizing, you know bands that I was on stage with shooting video of their first concert in the U S like the cure, you know, what, what's become of the cure and Billy Idol and, and, uh, bands who I, the clash, who I, you know, the clash and the buzzcocks who I still think that, you know, musically were, <clears throat> were brilliant, uh, bands, um, to realize we were there and for me to put, our audience and any viewer of that book there is a powerful thing. It was, you know, as, as time goes by, it was 40 years ago. Yeah. And um, to, for me to be able to launch a viewer, you know, back into the past 40 years and tell the stories of what transpired then, I think is a, is a powerful thing. Yeah. So just briefly, because it's quite interesting, what was your sort of own story that took you up to, say, the, the kind of the punk period and that post-punk period? What, what, what was your sort of formative years like? Well, I, I mean, there, are two, there were two things going on for me. One was musical and one was um, career-wise. So um, I w went to school at Boston University for a broadcasting degree because as a young 18-year-old, I knew everything. And I was into photography from 13 years old, but you couldn't teach me anything, of course, 
because I knew everything. So I figured I'd get, uh, you know, a, 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 degree, a degree associated with photography, filmmaking. Um, and then I took a photojournalism course. And I was like, oh, I don't know this. This is kind of cool. Um, and it was, it was an adventure because you, as a photojournalist, were plucked into different situations. So I was about to start my internship after doing a photojournalism course. And my teacher, uh, thinking I would, had promise, <clears throat> he set up an internship with the Associated Press for me. So it was the blizzard of 1978. And we had two, three or four foot snowstorms in a row to where it paralyzed Boston. And I was a skier, still a skier, and put on all my gear, boots and poles so I could make it through and got my camera and walked from uh, uh, Massachusetts Avenue and Marlboro Street all the way to South Station it, it, where the Associated Press office is photographing and walked in two weeks early to my internship with a couple of rolls of film and was published on the Associated Press Wire. So my day job was as a freelancer or stringer for the Associated Press. At night, I was a club kid. I grew up in New York. I really thought that uh, commercial rock music sucked behind. Like it really <laughs> was, you know, the Journeys, the Foreigners, the, the, Boston, the bands Boston and that it was it was pablum right i i was the rock i was interested in was the velvet underground and bowie and roxy music and iggy and but that wasn't played on the airwaves right so then i walked into the ratskeller which was just down the street from my dormitory at bu uh, 700 com ab which they called the zoo and <clears throat> I walked into the Ratskeller and it was the Boston Battle of the Bands and this band Le Pest was playing. And I was like, yeah, this music's amazing. I was sort of a jazz snob as a kid. I'd be in, 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 down in the village from my suburban New York City house and, uh, and go and listen to you know, Chick Corea and was in the park when Miles did his first concert after 10 or his 10 or 20 year hiatus and right. you know I'm sort of a jazz snob and then I because I thought jazz was very authentic right I thought I had thought Iggy was authentic and the Velvets were authentic but I didn't think Rush and Journey were authentic so I was blown away by this this night of music and the crowd and the self-expressed people dressed the way they wanted to and and you know I got into the music and this became my people and I took the skills I had as an Associated Press news photographer that I that I garnered during the day into photographing that world. I started getting assignments for Boston Rock Magazine and uh, and the commercial radio station WBCN, which <clears throat> started opening its airwaves up to punk, post-punk, new wave. Yes. So, so it's kind of an interesting period because I've sort of done quite a lot of interviews in that sort of period, especially in New York. So, you, you know, you had obviously CBGBs, you had Max's Kansas City, then you had the Mud Club, um, Tier 3, uh, three. you had, you know, television, uh, the New York Dolls, and then it's kind of had this amazing wave of, I suppose, psychobilly bands, and you had people like Andy Warhol, and then you had Basquiat, and you, maybe you had, you know, Robert Maplethorpe. So New York obviously was kind of a wash with heroin and it was very seedy and it was very cheap as well. So it kind of, 
you know, there was kind of ups and downs with that, you know, obviously cheap rent, but lots of sort of dodgy characters. So, so when you were experiencing that, what was your sort of first take of this kind of absolutely happening scene? Um, you know, you know, I, I talk about it in, in punk, post-punk, new wave in the new book. Um, I, I talk about, you know, that I grew up in an old world Italian family that was relatively um, uh, parochial, conservative uh, from a social standpoint. Um, and here I am thrust into the punk scene, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The, I mean, the drug for us, there was not a lot of heroin use in Boston, but there was a lot of cocaine use. Um, me included. <laughs> so, um, you know, I occasionally dealt it to make money. I, we used it all the time. We, you know, it was, that was part of the scene. Um, <clears throat> you, you know, you, you slept with someone different every night. You partied, you went out, you, if, if you were bored at home, which, you know, we, I had this lifestyle of, of, waking up uh, to go to work and, and uh, to do an assignment. If I had an assignment from the night before for the Associated Press, I usually knew about it. I would, <clears throat> I would get up, do that assignment, you know, whether I was still drunk or hungover or whatever. I would get the assignment in, go back home, take a nap, sleep till like eight or nine o'clock, um, get up, have a slice of pizza or go to the hoodoo barbecue um, uh, at the Rathskeller, this amazing, highly rated uh, barbecue joint in the seediest, most disgusting club in the world. Um, and then we'd go out, we'd go see a show, we'd go to Spit. There was this nightclub, Spit, that was every surface in the nightclub was painted black. The bar, the walls, the ceiling, the floor, everything was black. Um, and we were out every night and, you know, it was a club culture at that time. Yes. Really, you know. But, it was all, but, but, you know, suddenly, you know, I mean, no one knows at the time, and this is kind of that thing that everything feels quite ephemeral when you're young. And also we were all a bit dazed and confused at the best of times. So then realizing that the photographs you took at that period, hey, you managed to keep hold of the negative, brilliant. But also, they've become such iconic people as well, haven't they? They're not just like, yeah, who are they? It's like, my God, that's Adam Ant. Oh, that's the Cramps. This is, you know, blah, blah. You know, it, it was just an incredibly fortunate time to be there on that kind of cultural zeitgeist, really, wasn't it? Yeah, we, we were there. I was part of the scene. And, and everyone touts New York. And, and New York had its own flavor, right? New York's flavor were, you know, television and, the, as you said, the New York Dolls and the, and the local you know, the blondie, um, the local bands, right, that were, that were up and coming, Patti Smith. And I, I saw the dolls um, when I was in high school in New York for New Year's Eve. And I, you know, I saw Patti Smith's first big concert in Central Park. And, and I, I was into that. But when I went to Boston, what was significant about Boston is Boston, you know, the lazy uh, AR people, record people, when they were setting up tours, the tour was the same. There were two versions of a tour around the United States. It was start in Boston because it's an hour, half hour closer flight from London, right? And it doesn't matter if you're a US band or not, start in Boston, warm up for New York, 
get to New York and either go south in the winter and then back around the country uh, in the summer, the north part of the country, or just the opposite. So Boston was the landing spot. It was the first show. If you heard a cool song by Devo <clears throat> and they're an Akron, Ohio band, the first national gig they're gonna do is in Boston. If Billy Idol, I mean, first concert of The Cure, the first concert of The Buzzcocks, first concert of The Police, the first concert of every UK and US band started in Boston. So we also had the first um, college punk station, the Late Risers Club on, uh, I guess the first show was the Demi Moon with my friend Oedipus. We just did a virtual book signing last night together. I haven't seen him in 30 years. <clears throat> and they expanded that at the MIT station, um, uh, WTBS, which was the call letters at the time. It's now WMBR. Ted Turner bought the call letters from the station. Um, but he expanded that into the Late Risers Club. And this was the first punk radio station in the United States, the first punk show. And we would all listen to it. You'd hear this song by someone, and then they were in your backyard the next day. So our scene was really more of the worldly scene and not um, you know, the local bands. The, the local bands, for some reason, never got a lot of national attention. I mean, Till Tuesday hit, obviously. There's a couple of cult bands that we'd all hang out with. Um, um, Mission of Burma. I, I mean, La Peste has got, you know, a very, very cult uh, following. Not many people know about La Peste. People know about Mission of Burma. Yes. But um, um, the Boston bands really didn't take off, but we had an international scene in our backyard on a regular basis. But did you, when you started sort of seeing these characters, I mean, when you're young, I mean, a, a, you know, there, there is a sort of a, a na naive enthusiasm and sort of sometimes arrogance, which is kind of necessary. But did you also find yourself having to sort of play catch up quite quickly, sort of like thinking, right, how do I take a really special picture of this? Or how do I approach this person, get a conversation, get a relationship and get that photograph? I just wondered how you were also developing a, as an artist as well. Well, you, you know, I had a real sense of competition working for the Associated Press. Every one of those staff photographers, there were three or four staff photographers in the Boston or BX was the code for the, for the office bureau. And <clears throat> I'm, I'm a competitive person. I want to take, you know, I, I always wanted to be a photographer and saw myself as a notable photographer, even when I started looking at pictures at 12 and 13 in the Time Life books, I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And, and I sort of approached every single shoot like that. And I was into the music. I was part of the scene. I had a beat up leather jacket and old cowboy boots and tight jeans and, um, you know, a t-shirt out at night. And, and wore a different uniform for my day job at the Associated Press. I had a button-down shirt, hiking boots in case you needed to step on someone's toes who's in your Absolutely, way. Absolutely, yes. Army uh, and Navy stalls. Everyone went <laughs> to the Army and Navy and bought big boots. Um, but but <laughs> I, I, those skills were developed from my day job. So, and, and I, oh, I had a sense of, of love of portraiture. I did portraiture in, in high school and, as I was studying photography before I went into college and got into photojournalism, 
So I would always try to do both. You know, Annie Leibovitz's career was just getting noticed at that time also. Um, I would, re I really loved her work and was influenced by it. And I thought that taking portraits showed that you got access. Yes. That you had a relationship with the band. That you're, that you're not just a photojournalist documenting a show for them backstage, but they posed for you. So I had the attitude that I was going to get it all. I was going to document the backstage. I was going to shoot the crazy shows. I was going to uh, pull talent, as, as we you know, loosely call um, celebrities in Hollywood talent. Or <laughs> um, we, we, I was going to pull talent aside and do portraits. And, and the portraits in punk, post-punk, new wave are very impromptu. They're very you know, I'm backstage with Billy Idol and it's like, hey, Billy, go in the corner there. And I'm taking a little Vivitar 283 flash and bouncing it off the side of the wall. And, you know, they're, they're very impromptu. The B-52's portrait I had, I was always looking to elevate what I was shooting, right? So I brought a piece of seamless paper with me. I taped it to the wall. I had a, that little flash in an umbrella behind me with people walking around like it, it, crazy, zoo-like conditions yes. and grab the band as they're walking off stage you know would go backstage and ask poison ivy to pose for me and she just turned it on it was cool and and um, you notice I, I don't know if you notice the the image in the book of lux who had lost his pants while performing of course because that happens to everyone when they sing on stage and perform on stage your pants fall down so he lost his pants that you can see the sequence of images as his pants come down on stage. And then I asked to take his portrait. He saw me shooting poison ivy and he comes by. He had a robe on at that point because he had no other clothes on, but he went and took a hot dog bun from the uh, craft services catering table, their food, and put his penis in it and had me take his portrait with his penis in a hot dog bun. So, I, I mean, it was... You know, the portrait style was loose, it was fun, it was impromptu, but the portraits were just as important to me as, as shooting people on stage. Yes. Because with, with, without them, without them, you don't, you, A, without them, it, the, the project or the, the book wouldn't have as much depth. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I did speak to, um, is it Bob um, Wooing? Who, who just bought a book? And he, and he mentioned another photographer. Uh, he was very Bob influenced. Bruin. Yes, that's the one. And he said he was very influenced by, you know, he named various ones, but also Ouija, the kind of photographer that went around and he was always there, sort of taking pictures of people who had just been shot or murdered on the streets. Did you sort of have that other, you know, did you have that sort of sense as well of really thinking, God, I've really got to capture this tonight? I've just got to, even if I'm not feeling it, I've just got to go out and suddenly with the camera and being there kind of you got that excitement oh absolutely i mean absolutely and besides working for the associated press in 1980 i joined a little photo agency called picture group and so i was getting trained by people who were picture editors and selling images to magazines and i was also getting trained by you know news photographers traditional news photographers so i knew what was important i knew you know Magazine didn't want to buy a picture of a band with the microphone in front of their face, so, you know, sort of go to the side and try not to have the microphone in their face. And, and um, 
you know, I, I had a lot of input, which I, in retrospect was helpful. Yes. And one thing I've noticed, and there's kind of interesting, because some photographers, there's um, Dominic Cummins, who, who seems to sort of still manage to have that urgency and energy of sort of wanting to sort of photograph bands. And then other artists like Mick Rock really had a period where, you know, it was like, yes, you were there with the Bowie and the Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, that kind of glam period. But obviously somehow it didn't go into the 80s and beyond. That's a slightly sweeping statement, but generally his work is that kind of Bowie stuff and Ziggy. Did, do you sort of also look at yourself thinking, God, you were really there during that period and then sort of got to 91 and then felt, actually, I'm not kind of able to keep this going and, and wanting a change? Well, I mean, if I kept the lifestyle going, as I've said before, I'd be dead. <laughs> um, in 83, I got a staff job at Boston Herald, which was you know, one of two daily newspapers in Boston. It was the tabloid, but it had won five Pulitzer Prizes in photography, uh, not in journalism. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> not in journalism at all, but in photography. So it was sort of an honor to be there. Um, I, it was, I wanted that aspect of my life. So out of a 40 year career, the first 13 years was as a photojournalist. Even when I left the Herald and was invited to, to be, sort of staff for uh, People Magazine um, uh, or their equivalent of staff, um, I started doing photojournalism for them in Los Angeles. So um, um, it wasn't that I could, I just left it at 91. It's that I got a job. I stopped being a club kid every night because I just couldn't maintain that and work five days a week, 10 to six, Tuesday through Saturday, which was my shift most of the time. Um, it, it was untenable to be doing drugs all night and up till four or five o'clock in the morning and then have to go to work. So I, I sort of chilled that out and there are still pictures obviously. And those pictures, um, uh, I, they, I would still get an assignment and still keep my feet in. So, you know, the portrait of Amy Mann, the portrait of uh, Warren from the Del Fuegos, um, uh, I, I, at the time, I guess I didn't mention, but the Del Fuegos hit nationally also. Um, um, <clears throat> um, don't want to disrespect them also. Um, so, you know, I kept my feet in and then in 87 moved to Los Angeles to work for People Magazine and got out of the music lifestyle. So the images of uh, Al Jorgensen from Ministry were while I was in LA and they were for Raygun Magazine. Um, and the image of Daniel Ash um, with the fire. So the last few images, I had already sort of transitioned into Hollywood, into the Hollywood world, knowing that I wanted to be a Hollywood portrait photographer. And, you know, the Daniel Ash picture, as I, as I talk about with the flames, was sort of um, the entree of, of imagery of my conceptual, lyrical, sort of Hollywood portrait photographer story, the storytelling, you know, I, he was in Love and Rockets at the time. And, you know, I used that, I had a special effects guy come and, you know, he's illuminated by the flame. Um, um, but I expanded the series of pictures to include those because that, you know, the, the, the last few images that the, the uh, Al Jorgensen really show my interest as, as moving forward in lighting. 
yeah. right? And the Daniel Ash and, and sort of, you know, the conceptual aspect of it. And I included those, but the majority of work was shot between 78 and 83 when I was out every night. And, you know, wishing now in retrospect, wish I had uh, a camera with me um, every night. You know, I wish when I saw the Smiths, I photographed the Smiths and I saw the psyched furs, I photographed the psyched furs and, it's always the ones that we um, didn't get, we regret, don't we really? Yes. It is yes. that one. So yes, because I, I do sort of, I do sort of realise that keeping that kind of energy in that underground, because we had a DJ in England called John Peel in the UK who, who became you know, popular elsewhere and around the world because people, you know, used to tune in. But his producer said, you know, the day that John Peel ever hit puberty, we'd be in trouble, which kind of meant that he just always wanted that next kind of indie classic or that next rave classic or that whatever that, you know, the kids are making. But to keep yourself in that kind of scene is it is almost like you mustn't step away from it. So obviously, when you wanted to change your own sort of career path, it meant you had to make that choice of not going to the clubs all the time, but actually doing other things, which, which is kind of like the crossroads, isn't it? Like a Jim Jamoose movie. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I, you know, I moved to Los Angeles. I moved out with a woman I was dating. I, I had a kid who's, who's 28 at this point. You know, you, you, you sort of like, you have to make a lifestyle choice. Uh, you know, wouldn't have been a very good father or husband being out till four o'clock in the morning doing blow all night, like it yes. just and drinking all night, you know. And did you? I mean, just kind of curious because because we're interested vaguely. But there were there was some. I have noticed that there's just been lots of books that people have just brought out, literally in the last year. I mean, you know, from that period, you know, like there's a Kevin Kevin Cummins has done one on Sex Pistols that he done. It was Christmas Day, 1976. There was another guy who did one in Texas for a reason. And also when midnight comes by Gary Green, which is all that kind of New York scene from the same period. Did you sort of, when you sort of saw those books and your own book, did you think, blimey, we've all been, so we've all had the same thought in the last couple of years. Well, you know, I, we were talking about this earlier that, um, um, you know, that things like this age well, right? The, the, zeist, the zeitgeist of, of the world is interested in this music again. And I think it just happens, like, uh, you know, um, I didn't know any of those books were coming out. I, I saw the Texas one. Um, um, I, I've seen two out of the, uh, two of them uh, relatively recently, but a book like this for me is a, was a five-year project. Yes. I mean, my staff, one of my archivists um, would pull images out and, and say, hey, you gotta do something with all this stuff. This stuff's fantastic. Like, and then I'd look at it and, then I brought in an editor friend to pull stuff. And then I had to go pull stuff because I didn't feel like we got it all. You know, then I, we did mock-ups and sent it to publishers and finally found uh, a publisher in London who was going to do it. And then they fell out. The, the, the publisher himself was a little nutso. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, not to mention any names. Um, um, and then, um, then I... You know, after the, the my publisher in London dropped out, and it wasn't a great situation. It was a pay-to-play situation. Um, I, in desperation, asked my friend Danny Clinch, who's uh, a photographer, Danny's a sweetheart, and he hooked me up with Abrams. And I walked into the Abrams office, and they loved the work. And 
you know? So there's three or four years of scanning photos, editing photos, doing that. And then you launch into, um, okay, we're on a production schedule for the next year, right? Yes. So it's hiring a writer, getting uh, talent to do a forward. Thank you, Fred Snyder. <laughs> um, uh, thank you, Jim Sullivan, for, for the great writing in the book. They're, they wanted stories from me, so I had to write uh, for it. And, and then you're still editing photos. We were, uh, we would, I would typically do these very inexpensive scans, but they, they take a long time. They, they, sh they ship them uh, abroad, they courier them abroad. Um, they're cheap, but they take a really, really, you know, like three, two months, three months. We couldn't do that. I was getting these very expensive drum scans made. Oh, all right, this file is not good. Let's redo it. Oh, let's add this picture. Right up until like the week of press, we were supposed to go to press. And my archivist, Michael Parker, who pulled these pictures out, found all these old Boston rock magazines. And <clears throat> she found them because we had to register the work in the United States with Copyright Office, and she needed to find the first publication. And then we're looking at frames that were published at the time and realizing that they weren't part of the book. So we were freaking out. It's like, look look at that picture of Lux with the microphone, like in his mouth, down his throat. Like, so we then again scanned five or six images and switched pictures out at the last minute. It, you know, it, it's this process, it's like having a kid and you keep doing everything you can to form it, the, form them the best way you can. Yes. <laughs> and then they're launched and you think they're out of the house, but you're still taking care of them. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, it, it, you know, so it was this, it was this, it's been this process and I had no idea what was going to come out. You know, we just and engaged in the process. So obviously, you know, did, you know, because it must be an, a, an emotional journey seeing all these photographs and also did you sort of when you hit send or, or buy now, did you suddenly look around and go, oh my God, too late, there's still others, but never mind, let's not think about that at the moment. I just wondered how that felt. Well, um, my dear friend, I, you know, I was very close with the people in human sexual response. I traveled with them. We, they would play in New York all the time and I'd, I'd get in the car and travel with them to the mud club and, and I hung out with them. Deanie and Wendell, two of the lead singers were, were still dear friends of mine. Um, went to London with them. <clears throat> Deanie's very upset at me because I didn't include the best picture of the band, which he's absolutely right. I don't know how we missed it. There's this amazing picture of uh, Deanie Lameau in like mud, almost naked with a little bikini underwear on in this incredible pose that didn't make it there's a nice portrait of amy mann um on a leaning on a parking meter that didn't so there's two pictures that i'd like to add to the book right now but i can't do it <laughs> <laughs> what was the name of that band you mentioned um human sexual response human sexual i'll have to check them out I, yes I, well I, I, you know their songs. I want to be Jackie Onassis. I want to wear dark, dark sunglasses. I want yes. to be Jackie Onassis. Oh yeah. I mean, they had two novelty songs um, that were that made airwaves. And the song "Sex." What does sex mean to me? It's a big question. It's a big... So, look, what would you say then if you could have said something to your eighteen-year-old self, starting out after all these 
decades of kind of experience and and survive in the the sometimes interesting world that is kind of you know rock and roll and just the creative arts um what I would have realized is how important what I was doing as an 18 year old was, you know, documenting something that not everyone gets to be a part of. Um, you know, a, a photographer could, a photographer could photograph a band. You can have a book about the Sex Pistols or a lot of David Bowie photographs or, and, and they're amazing photographs. Mick Rock is an amazing photographer. Um, Kevin Cummings, I, I know the name and uh, it is a, good photographer but the opportunity I had was uh, I photographed everyone I heard everyone I photographed everyone I was with them I you know I was this club kid and you know so there's this great in punk post-punk new wave there's a great array of bands that I hung out with and and got intimate moments with and pictures with and um you know did coke all night with Adam Ant's drummers and was on live television with my friends from Human Sexual Response. Um, when they decided on live television to do their song, But Fuck, because they were on live television and they wanted to make a scene. So I think it was one of the only times when whatever station it was had to shut down the show. <laughs> um, but we, you know, there were all these nights, you know, hanging out with Billy Idol, who he and I were friends and we did the, hanging out backstage together. Um, uh, you know, we, we were exposed to a lot of different bands and, and got being in the scene and being the locals that would host parties afterwards and hang out afterwards. We, we got to experience the, the musicians that came through our town. Yes, and with a lot, I know quite a lot of academics and often when they look back at their early work, they kind of cringe and stuff. As a photographer, when you look back at your, you know, this work and obviously, you know, realising this was, you know, much younger you, do you, how do you sort of just feel about it? Do you think, okay, that's really good? Or do you sometimes think, oh, that's, that's good, but it's a bit naive, but thank God it's Adam Ant or Billy Idol because people are going to love it for what it is. I just wonder when you, when you look at it, you can see a much younger you. Um, I, I think I, I think I took some damn amazing pictures at the time if I if I can say that myself and it's thank God I was working for the Associated Press during the day I mean what I knew in studying fine art photography um, as a you know before I before I went to Boston and started studying photojournalism and stringing uh, freelancing for the Associated Press I wouldn't have had the skill set to take pictures a lot of people say the the, the pictures look contemporary because they're executed well and they don't and they don't look like someone who's 18 19 20 years old with that skill set and I, I just have to credit you know Dave Tenenbaum and Chip Morey from the Associated Press and and because you couldn't screw up you couldn't screw up when you're doing a press conference with the governor even though now that seems so like who gives a who gives a crap but yeah um, <clears throat> um, you know, they were an incredible, uh, incredibly competitive bunch. And you, I took that attitude everywhere. So I, I actually, the more I speak about the work and the more I realize that how much people are into it, um, you know, 
I actually am, and the more I do these podcasts and interviews, the more I'm kind of appreciative of what I've lived through and what I was, what I photographed. Yes. If you stare at a particular picture long enough, even if it's something I shot, you know, uh, iconic celebrity portrait as a Hollywood celebrity portraitist, you get sick of any picture that you stare at enough and you think, okay, you know, that maybe this isn't so good. Yeah, that, that, that can definitely happen, but at this point I'm sort of appreciating more what I did. It, it actually took me a lot. You know, Michael Parker, my archivist, who, who, a woman, um, um, and I just say that because her name's Michael, um, uh, she had to pull out a lot of pictures for me to even acknowledge that, you know, there was something there. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, I, and I was like, all right, you're right. These pictures are cool. We should do something. Yeah, just on that last point, I sort of realised looking back at this kind of period, and I suppose I'm fascinated by it, it does help. You've got the music, but having these books and these images helps so much because there's very little live film, you know, live footage, because not many people had, you know, little video cameras or they didn't take big video cameras or film. But having, you know, good photographer, good photographers out there doing these and making these very iconic pictures, it really does pull together that scene even more so I think that period of time that 25 35 years and you start looking you listen to the music and you know some of the music gets reissued and it's nicely packaged and then you look at the books and you look at these clubs and you can't believe there's people on stage and there's the band or the crowd right in front of them and and you know it's like wow they're quite you know you can't I can't I find myself staring at them for quite a while sometimes because it's like god that wouldn't happen now you know that and just look at those people you know a lot of them are still bizarrely alive you know which is quite extraordinary yeah you know it, it it's a lot of this music too is still so important you know the clash you know i still listen to the buzzcocks and think they're you know for pop punk brilliant you know a lot of so a lot of this music in, in this period you you have to remember you know it was definitely a cultural phenomenon in in great britain and in the UK, it was a cultural phenomenon, and I think with Margaret Thatcher and inflation, unemployment, it was a you know it was a cultural statement. Here, it was a musical explosion because um, you, our airwaves were locked up. Com commercial radio was was commercial radio. You you had to you know they either took payola to get a record. The record companies, um, uh, for the most part manufactured the band and the sound and the look and the da 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 um, and musicians wanted a voice so it was it was a really important period and you you know i talk about this you know it punk blew up college radio and college radio made commercial radio half the change and it wasn't just on the rock side it, you know, this happened parallel, the same time with, with rap. You know, rap, as much as I love Motown, you know, top 40 radio couldn't just be, you know, smooth Motown. It's like people had something to say, kids had something to say, youth had something to say, and it needed to get said. So you had punk and rap happen at the same time, exploding their, their, the, uh, genres and blowing up what was tradition 
and and figuring out a way to get heard either through records or college radio or so on. Yes, this is true. Look, well, look, I just, you know, it's amazing work and I'm just so pleased that you've you know, brought it out. So that's fantastic. So, um, and thank you for ever so much for your time. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate our audience being here listening. And uh, punk. so it, it's, it's not the easiest title in the world. Uh, punk, post-punk, new wave, on stage, backstage, in your face. 1978 to 1991 should be available everywhere at this point. Yes, it's Christmas coming up. <laughs> That's what you need, isn't it? Under the Christmas tree. Look, well, thank you ever so much for your time. It's been brilliant. And thank, thank you again for your amazing work. Thank and you. And archiving it all. That's, that's always amazing. I want to thank our audience today. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, take care. Thanks a lot. Bye now. Cheers. Bye-bye. And that is how you say goodbye. In an easy way, well, especially when you're British like me. Anyway, look, that was me in conversation with Michael Greco with his book, Punk, Post-Punk and New Wave. It's available online from all good bookshops and everything else. But do check it out. It's absolutely stunning. Um, yes, that's all I've got to say. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some really exciting reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. And also all these have been archived and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, check them out. They might just change your life. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.